They paved over Paradise and put up a parking lot. But what exactly Paradise is, is entirely subjective. For the good of the scorpion is not the good of the frog. And so, as wildlands have dwindled across the blue planet, an asphalt jungle has emerged. It's a land of milk and honey to be sure, for those willing to weather the risks. But here, we consider the hazards these fearless explorers face. This is the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Skunk Junk Removal operates 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on all your toughest garbage situations. We're the skunks with just the spunk to deal with that funk. We'll haul your junk and your gunk. That's no bunk. He keeps saying you'll get around to cleaning that mess, but we all know you can't make a skunk change its stripes. Give us a ring instead. Smell you later. Hey there, fellow naturalists, and welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. I'm your host, Professor Iwigi. I'm a naturalist and educator with Crow's Path, and I am here with Glenn Etter, who does uh, design work for pigeon pots. <laughs> That's right. You have any questions about our business? <laughs> well, I was just curious. <laughs> I, I, pigeon pots is, I love businesses that have alliterations, and it seems like any animal-themed business always has the the worst puns on animal or on business name. So I was trying to figure out what exactly you guys do at Pigeon we Pots. Aim for, well, first of all, we do aim for perfect Pigeon Pots to give it a bit more alliteration. It's been a confusing time for our industry, you know, with all the legalization of pot going around in various states. We don't actually work on um, providing pigeons with marijuana. I want to make that clear. Okay. So if, you're, if your pigeon is in need, we can recommend you. We can refer you to some some veterinarians that are open-minded about that. But we make small pots that pigeons can use either for nesting or for gardening or both. Um, so they're pigeon-sized and they're they're usually multicolored because, as you, you probably have noticed, a lot of pigeons have sort of an iridescent multicolored look about them. So we try to make them more comfortable making the pot iridescent as well. So they're expensive. They cost about $500 each. <laughs> it's a niche business. These are for pigeon fanciers. <laughs> they're for fanciers or people who just love park pigeons and want perfect pi- park pigeon pots for their park friends. I was really hoping pigeon pots was uh, tiny little commodes for pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out, that's what they're used for most often. Or the fanciers in an emergency. Speaking of pigeon fanciers, I am actually going to put in a little plug. My sister, Meryl O'Connor, who's a filmmaker, and uh, she edited a film recently that is phenomenal, and it's called Pigeon Kings. And her friend Melena made this. Uh, she basically embedded herself in these uh, pigeon fanciers. Uh, I'm sure there's probably a technical name for people that raise uh, pigeons and then fly them, but it's they really them. amazing. It's out in East them. L.A. They wow. race them. They have them do, yeah, like flight information. And... We came across one once while traveling at the beach it was just it was very tame and uh it was just standing right next to us and we realized it had a little ba- little band and then it turns out you can trace mm. trace where it came from and where it was going and its band number yeah it was cool and it, i worked as an educator in new york city and taking the train when you're up in the bronx all the trains are elevated tracks and so you're for a lot of time you're up you know at the height of some buildings or where you can see the rooftops and there are a bunch of different cages all over the the Bronx where yeah people keep pigeons and then a couple of times I would see people out with like little flags on their their roofs flying their pigeons. It's really cool. Do you have you ever sent a message by by pigeon? I haven't. No. I think I it's underutilized. I, I mean, think how cool it would be to get one, right? <laughs> Amazing. Nearly Harry Potter type quality. Yeah. I think it should be part of the school curriculum. Everyone should get a pigeon. 
or not, I think it would help us care for animals. Think, think about our messages, right? Like yeah. texting, you can just send anything, but when you've got like a pigeon, it's going to take two days to get, you know, you want to think about what you write. Pigeon pals instead of pen pals? <laughs> yeah. Pigeon powered pals, maybe. Uh, so yeah, so all of this is a nice little entryway into our uh, discussion for season three. So uh, yeah, in this city or in this season, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on animals that exist in an urban context. And what we'll do this week is we'll frame it by talking about what a city is or isn't and some of the different factors that a animal will focus mostly on animals but also plants have to cope with or overcome if they're going to live in a city and then in the next one we'll look at not just the challenges but the specific adaptations and the sort of patterns of adaptations that animals have for coping with city life and then we're going to profile a whole bunch of different species so yeah this is a little plug we have a patreon page so for our patreons we sent out a little survey and people got to vote for their favorite um, wow their nice. favorite urban animals and so we're going to profile our faves the power of the patreon <laughs> yeah you also don't have to be a patreon supporter you can just subscribe to the wild burlington newsletter and yeah so we got maybe like 40 or 50 responses from that so we're going to profile some pretty cool yeah animals and uh i think one plant will do so i'm excited yeah. i'm excited i think the animals that we chose are excited or voted in <laughs> yeah, there was a little. I've been wrapping it out my window. There was a little party in the the green room for <laughs> the single acorn <laughs> with our favorite peregrines and yeah pigeons. Yeah, so I I wanted to do this topic. I I've always loved the challenge of finding wildlife in hidden or forgotten spaces, and I've spent most of my life uh, living in pretty urban environments. And even here in you know I live in Vermont. We live in Vermont, and it's not particularly built up, but uh, I live in the most populated area in the state and uh, yeah even just uh, today uh, yeah i think it was this morning i got an email from a neighbor of mine saying that there was a deer that had died in centennial woods and yeah this is in burlington so it's about forty thousand people here and centennial woods is a small 140 acre natural area that is bordered by pretty busy roads on three sides and then the interstate on the other side and there was a deer that had died in there. And this actually happened last year as well, where a bobcat wound up taking down a deer in the woods. And it was amazing. To, I set up some game cameras and got some cool footage of uh, bobcat moving through that area. But um, yeah, the deer had a, a broken leg and it was a buck with just like a couple points on the, the rack. Um, but I set up a, a game camera, a couple game cameras on it now. So it'd be cool to see in an urban area what taphonomy is like. So taphonomy is the study of how dead things decompose over time. You know, there are researchers that work out in Yellowstone that are looking at large animals and how they decompose over time. And the scavenger populations there are going to be super, super different than we have here in a city. But we still have the same processes, right? So it's, you know, a constructed environment on some level. But it's it's so fascinating because you can still see all of the different you know, fields of study for ecology taking place in in urban settings. So wow, maybe we could put on Patreon. You could vote for what you think will be the primary scavengers. Have a little <laughs> yeah. contest. That's right, and for our top tier of supporters, <laughs> you can you can get a little cut of meat from our urban deer. Would a raccoon? See, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this question. Raccoons ever scavenge off a carcass? Yeah. So you might get some raccoons there. Yeah. Although Bobcats. interestingly, they they don't seem to be. You know, at the carcasses that I've set up in the past, they seem to be curious. Raccoons seem to always want to know what's going on in an area, but I haven't gotten one 
feeding on a carcass in the the woods. Feral cats? Ever get a feral cat? Investigating, but not but not so much not actually not. feeding. Yeah, gotten squirrels. I snowshoe hares. About thirty percent of their winter diet comes from. Uh, <laughs> oh, from scavenged so carcasses. sweet and innocent. Eat the yeah. care, but no, they're just ripping off the dead flesh. Yeah. Blood all over their white fur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little monsters. I haven't gotten any any rabbits or hares feeding on carcasses, but a lot of, you know, crows and ravens and squirrels will come to investigate. Yeah. Of course, the urban setting, we get things like the vampires, the werewolves, the zombies as well. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Those will be cool. Some of them don't show up, I, I hear, on game cameras, but... Yeah, you just see the, the, special the carcass chip. slowly disappear. <laughs> yep. The evidence is there, though. They're out there. Yeah. Yeah, so we were just talking before we got on about, you know, how people... Everybody has a story about wildlife that they get particularly excited about. And it seems like in cities, you're far more likely to encounter wildlife. They might not be the big dramatic bison or caribou or wolf... But even encounters with chipmunks are are still really precious and exciting here in uh, a city. But yeah, you got any good stories for us? When we first moved to Vermont, my my son was four, and and um, I told him like, oh, Vermont's really cool. You're gonna be lots of animals there. We'll see. And then probably like the third or fourth day we were there, we had a little compost bucket set up on on the porch, the place we were we we're living, and a possum visited it. We like looked at it through this glass window and it was like kind of cute. It was like nibbling, you know, possums are on the borderline between cute and kind of horrifying, I think. (laughs) Definitely. And maybe for an adult, (laughs) but he was sort of entranced and we were like, oh, it's Popo the possum. You know, we named it, which was maybe a little too close to Poopoo in retrospect, but um, it would come to the compost, you know, periodically for for a couple months. And we kind of would like look at it sometime. We would sort of check, you know, nightly for Popo. And one time when we were looking at it, we like Finn kind of got close to the to the glass door and was kind of waving at it. And, and I don't know if it sensed him or was alarmed by something else, but it just sort of like bared its teeth. And they have lots of teeth. I think they have like 50 teeth or something. And it just screeched. It just was like, kind of like <laughs> Finn kind of like backed up like Popo. And we sort of spun it as like it was howling at the, he was like a little bit afraid of it for, for a while, but then he got over that. And so then we would sort of start, and then we, when winter came, we would find possum tracks from the compost pile. So like yeah. there was a there was an unlived in house close by that led led underneath that house. So we started learning a little bit about about possums through that first first experience. I think Finn Finn sort of imagined that there were possums everywhere. Like that's what was like a state animal of Vermont. <laughs> yeah. So Popo, yeah. if you're out there listening to this podcast, you're awesome. But maybe less screaming close up at kids. It's scared. <sighs> Man, possums are the strangest. I, you know, we just uh, everybody survived the most recent election, <laughs> and I re- remember back in two thousand eight when Obama first won. It was election night, and I went outside, and it was a nice warm night, and I went out to take the compost out, and it, it was like right as his, uh, you know, the the announcement was made and I could just hear horns honking in the distance and people shouting and yelling and music blasting. It was just this amazing thing. And then I I got to the compost pile and something just kind of caught my attention. And I looked up and there's a chain link fence right behind the compost pile. And there was a possum that was just standing with all four legs gripping the round pole on top. It was just (laughs) like perched right up there completely oblivious to me and anything else going on around and it was just licking the pole <laughs> it's just the a pole licker that's how they celebrate that's how they celebrate a great victory it must oh. have been it was just the strangest thing and i've had so many ex- encounters with possums where i just i can't 
I can't even begin to imagine what's going on in its it's head. Yeah, they're just very strange. Maybe it needed Uh, some mineral from the pole. Did its tongue get stuck, as in the famous Christmas? No, this is a nice warm night. And no, I mean, minerals, I I can't really imagine. I thought maybe there was like an insect hatch or something. Again, it was like kind of a warm night, but it was November. I I don't know. (laughs) I, yeah, never really figured it out. Popo, the pole, like a week. Okay. Yeah. Well, stay tuned because we're going to dive into. Maybe yeah, that's what Popo and... was screeching about. Somebody saw another possum licking a pole. It's like, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. There's weirdo. no reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Anything's possible with a possum. Oh, you never know. It's They're just possum pots also. Now that I think about it. Oh, yeah. There you go. Diversify. You go. Diversify. Yeah. Important. You don't want to put all your eggs in one pot, pot as they say. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so we're talking about urban wildlife and... It's out there, right? It's out there. It's all around us. It's all around us. It's in our house. Actually, we're going to do one profile on an insect uh, or uh, invertebrate. And we're going to do... We'll actually do a a combo with uh, house spiders and house centipedes or cellars centipedes. And so it's not just out there. It's it's in here. It's out there and in there. Yeah. But it's helpful to start the discussion, I think, on some level by trying to figure out what exactly is a city. Uh, And if you start to read, you know, the literature on urban ecology, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that it's hard to pin down a definition. It's hard to pin down even if you try to define like what is a living organism that's really hard to define. And so the more specific you try to get with a topic, often the more confused you get. <laughs> so what do you what do you think of when you think of a city? What are like some of not necessarily the hazards that organisms face, but what makes a city a city? I'd say a certain number of people. You know, I mean, I, I guess I tend to think of it as versus a town or a village. A city has a certain quantity. I don't know, like 50,000 people. A lot of like paved surfaces. (laughs) A lot of of what used to be sort of there in the natural world is gone. There's buildings and streets and parking lots. A lot of noise and light, you know. And there's many conveniences. Theaters and garbage trucks. Possums at your back window. Museums, you know. I mostly think of it as just a giant collection of museums and nice people. Maybe I'm naive. Yeah, one of the, the definitions that I heard was a geographic area that cannot support its own population. <laughs> so it's by definition unsustainable in a way. Yeah. A scavenger. We're like, cities are scavengers, right? They, I mean, not scavengers. They're, uh, well, they're parasites in a way, right? They're sucking off other parts of the land. Although, I mean, could it be mutualism because potentially people in cities are buying, so they're spending money from people from rural areas, so there so, is an influx of cash into those. Yeah. yeah, okay, we'll think of it that way. Why not? It's possible. Positive spin. Yeah, so when you read definitions of what a city is, there's, uh, it's like, a, so I'm working on a tree identification book, and every tree ID book has to start out by, with this sort of obligatory definition of a tree that is a kind of shrug. Like if I say, you know, picture a tree, an object comes in your mind that's close enough. Uh, but then when you read a tree ID book or a book about the physiology of trees, there's some kind of definition that the author tries to pin down. To pin and with down. This, yeah, and so it's like, it's, you know, woody, it's got a height to it, it's got a stem that's usually single trunked or something. And so with the city, it's like, well, okay, we have these, when I say picture a city, you know, you might get an image in your head of like a metropolis. So there are buildings there. There's uh, not just a lot of people, but there's a high density of people. Um, and yeah, the buildings aren't like, it's not a suburban area. So 
you know, here in Burlington, we have a building cap of, I think, 11 stories or something. But, you know, that would be 11 story building would be huge in one of the surrounding suburban areas. And so it's got taller houses, taller buildings. And then, like you mentioned, a bunch of impervious surfaces. I think the the exact definition doesn't really matter because it's really hard to find a uh, an all encompassing definition perfect, of a city. Typical city. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll just think of and the what we talk about today when we talk about the hazards or challenges of living in these environments is we're gonna sort of skip back and forth a little bit loosely between you know an urban environment, a suburban environment and even weave in some data from like agricultural areas or a little bit of something for everyone no matter where they might live yeah um so we'll we'll be thinking sort of broadly about what it's like to live alongside a lot of people in a really built-up environment how about that so you're fuzzy or maybe you're feathered or scaled animal and You've, or furry, and you've found yourself living in uh, an urban environment. So what are the, the challenges in this environment that you would have to cope with? What makes, and we'll start with the challenges, but yeah, what makes a city tough I living? Imagine, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me would be finding food. Presumably for many animals or creatures, the, their normal food sources aren't quite there. There's not as many plants growing. Maybe not the things they're accustomed to eating. Or maybe there's not as many animals to eat, or maybe there's more places for those animals that they eat to hide for a predator. So I would say finding food would be a problem for some of them. Yeah. Luckily, there's the big city dumps, right? <laughs> yeah, for exactly. everyone there. Well, I mean, the whole city is essentially a dump. I mean, that's one of the things about a city is, you know, if it's something that's inherently unsustainable, you know, you have to input resources constantly to be able to sustain that population. And there's a huge amount of food waste that comes out of an urban environment. I I can't remember what it was. It was like every, the statistics no longer important because I can't remember if it was every day or every year. It was probably every year that uh, New York City produces enough food waste to uh, fill Yankee Stadium three times they should do that one year just for fun yeah yeah like an Um, art installation but so all that you know a lot of that food makes its way eventually into the uh the waste cycle or waste stream and makes its way to pennsylvania to a dump from out of new york city but a lot of it just winds up on the sidewalk uh also ugh, so gross uh walking in a city not Burlington so much because people are pretty good, but really built up cities. There's just a splattering of animal waste all over the place uh, from domestic animals, you know, right. dogs that have really unhealthy digestive tracts. And <laughs> if you're, uh, you know, if you're human, you scoff at or not scoff, but you are sort of repulsed by that. But if you're a pigeon or a rat or, you know, a microorganism that lives in a city that is a boon, you're getting this constant influx of energy from outside sources that some of it gets filtered through the digestive tract of a dog, but some of it might be just, you know, a bag of chips that someone drops on the ground. Are there urban dung beetles that you know of? They're a little feasting off of all this dog poop and we'll say cat poop, cats on a leash, rolling yeah. little balls. Um, I don't know. I've never seen an urban dung beetle. But... Yeah, I mean, if you in an urban environment isn't all just impervious service. There are parks in it, like in Washington D.C. There's Rock Creek Park, and there's this little stream that flows through there. And um, my wife, when before we got married, she was living down in D.C., and I would go visit her, and I go running in Rock Creek Park, and I saw deer all the time. I saw raccoons all the time. There were just a ton of animals that lived there, and so a wow. city isn't just the National Mall where it's like you know 
a large manicured lawn. Uh, it's like this forested area that animals can move. They can find den sites like raccoons could den in Rock Creek Park and then leave the park at night and go forage in dumpsters nearby. But yeah, so in a situation like that, you have these forested areas that can support larger animals that can produce larger waste piles that, yeah, what do we get? Dung beetles, yeah, can <laughs> can scavenge on. So yeah, there definitely are. All right. I actually found a fox scat near my house under the power lines right next to this little substation. And there was a pile of red fox scat in the middle of this uh, little service road. And there was uh, there were some dung beetles that were inside the scat there. So uh, I have seen it before. Wow, you harvested them. Or you saw them at least. I, I saw them. I did not harvest them. <laughs> I let them be. <laughs> yeah, Easy-wise. so... So with the the food thing, the you know there might not be natural food sources or trees that are producing bumper crops every year. Uh, so one of the hazards might be you don't have access to a food resource that you have co-evolved with for accessing or accessing through you know at the course of the seasons. But the other thing, or on the other hand, you have food that is constantly being input for human and domestic animal use in these urban environments that is a constant supply throughout the seasons. So animals that do not hibernate are able to outcompete animals that do hibernate because in the winter, it's not a season of want, it's a season of plenty. So perhaps another hazard, though, might be that if you've if your body's evolved to eat certain kinds of food and now you're eating completely different kinds of food, it might have some sort of adverse effect on one's health as an animal. I'm guessing. Maybe potato chips are good for animals. Uh, yeah, there's um, this animal uh, down in uh, Colombia called the white-footed tamarind, and they are an urban uh, animal. They they have, this, this is a primate, and so they'll live in cities and then they also live in the surrounding sort of rural agricultural forested areas as well. And in the cities where people have a lot of fruit trees that they've planted, they will eat a lot of uh, a lot more like um, uh, what mangoes and bananas and guava papayas and some other stuff. And so they're eating foods that they might eat ordinarily but they're eating them in much higher quantities and so looking at their cholesterol levels they have much higher cholesterol (laughs) levels a lot of foods that are available in in urban environments are much much easier to process so if it's already processed food you know the huge advantage of cooking food is that you don't have to chew as much uh, to get as many nutrients from it so if you look at like a raw diet versus a cooked diet uh, you have to eat far less in terms of volume to derive the same amount of nutrients and calories from a cooked diet uh, because it does a lot of the a pre-digestion. Yeah, for the you. pre-digestion for you. So you might have, you know, you might have less of the sort of essential nutrients that you need, but you might have more calories that are available to you. So they told us in when I lived in Costa Rica that the monkeys were all getting heart disease. Yeah. From the palm oil plantations. Mm. Not good for them. Yeah, I mean that's a, that is one of the problems is a homogenization of of diet in some of these urban environments for uh, animals that might be most animals that are living in cities are omnivores. Omnivores tend to be a little bit more curious and tend to explore more in their environment and explore more with different food resources. But if you move them to an urban area, they tend to have a more homogenous diet, so they might. Are there not be studies getting... done? With is sort of like so there must be some sort of evolution uh, of sort going on in cities where 
animals that are not as judicious about what food they eat just eat the worst possible foods just to sustain themselves and then get sick and die, don't reproduce as much. So that would it, and maybe they're sort of evolved to become a bit clever about their food choices or at least not eat poisonous things. Maybe eat a range of foods so that they don't uh, engorge themselves with one kind of food that would be bad for them. I don't know. Um, Anyone out there studying raccoon diets, gold <laughs> diets? Well, uh, so I, good or bad for them? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, toxins. I'll, I'll just use this as uh, a segue to talk about what I want to talk about. <laughs> That's fine. Um, but uh, toxins in the environment are are a big problem, and some of them are put there intentionally, like rodenticides, things for killing rodents, are designed to be ingested by mammals. And so, you know, it, it might behoove a rat to be able to pick out what is something that's intentionally uh, toxic to them and something that's not. Uh, but animals, you know, if you put out a buffet, you would go after often the things that are like the sweetest and the highest in caloric value for you. It's, I mean, I have a pretty insatiable sweet tooth. chocolate cake, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, our, our maybe long-term better judgment is always sacrificed by our uh, <laughs> hedonistic <laughs> tendencies. And animals is the same. So I don't think right. animals, you know, animals don't also live nearly as long as humans do. So there's less of a concern probably about having, Heart disease. you know, if yeah. you're yeah sexually mature at one or two, it doesn't matter if you, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, those rodenticides, I, I, yeah, I'll talk about a couple different toxins here, but rodenticides are problematic in the same way that like heavy metals are. And so yeah, I grew up out uh, in California in a suburb of LA. And it's kind of interesting, I grew up in this, you know, small town suburb of Los Angeles, and it was 100,000, which is 250% <laughs> larger than, than, than Burlington. the big city you live in now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but out there we have mountain lions and they're not, you know, super abundant, but they're common enough. And if you have an animal that is ingesting toxins in the environment, whether it's like lead pellets from, you know, black tailed deer that are, are shot and then don't die from it. And then you have a, a mountain lion or a condor ingest those lead pellets. They become toxic. Concentrated but, in them. Apex yeah. predators get more of them, right? Yeah, exactly. They accumulate bioaccumulation. So they accumulate in higher concentrations in predators. Yeah. And so there have been a few mountain lions that have showed up in Man uh, Santa Monica, like on the outskirts of these uh, urban environments where you have rats and other small mammals that are ingesting rat poisoning and then dispersing from the environment. They don't die right away. And then they disperse in the environment and then a uh, mountain lion comes along and, you know, kills enough of these and ingests all that toxin and it accumulates in their body without being processed and eventually it can kill them. The same thing happens, I mentioned with lead, but one of the big sources, one of the big sources for California condors is lead shot, again, from animals that are shot but not killed. And then their carcass, you know, they run off and then they die and their carcass is out to be scavenged. Uh, but you also can get lead from gasoline. And so lead gasoline which you know there have been a lot of laws that have passed either ban it outright or to reduce the amount that winds up getting into the environment and there's a cool study done in spain where they looked at 
lead poisoning in European kestrels. And they found that before these restrictions were put in place, there were higher levels of lead in the kestrels that were eating rodents that lived on the ground in contact with the leaded gasoline. And then after the restrictions were put in place, this was in, I think, the late 90s, the concentration in the kestrels went down. It didn't go down in individuals, but on the population as a whole, the lead accumulation went down. So the lead gasoline would just be get into the soil and get into the plants and then the rodents would eat the plants and then they would get a little bit of lead and that would go into the kestrels? Yeah, or if it gets into a puddle and an animal comes over and licks water up from the puddle, uh, would get it in, yeah, that way. Also, just like if it gets it on its feet and it's grooming itself, there are a bunch of different ways. But yeah, probably a lot of it is from being in the soil and then uh, getting into plants. Or maybe taking a bath, you know, because the gasoline probably helps clean off the dirt. (laughs) <laughs> solvent quality yeah. irresistible yeah. sort of like the chocolate cake in a buffet totally always go for the gasoline puddle if you want to get clean yeah so i tell my son yeah when it, one of the other we'll talk about a couple other negative or challenges that uh in particular amphibians have to overcome and there's so many of them i just imagine that the world for amphibians urban environments in particular is just a total nightmare because <laughs> they're sensitive right they absorb things they're really sensitive and they have sex determination is sort of plastic so there's genetic sex so a tadpole when it's you know hatches from an egg is either male or female but then there are different switches that can get turned on or shut off during development that can change the uh, genetic de- or the sexual development of the individual. So uh, in urban environments where you if you have birth control pills that are f- flushed into the water or um, that wash into riverways or if you have like a lawn just maintaining a lawn there tends to be higher concentrations of clovers in there and clovers produce phytoestrogens and so these if you have does this mean you could just eat a bunch of clover as a birth control i'm not saying we should advocate this as on the podcast in an emergency situation you just down a couple of clovers yeah i don't i don't think so okay i just want to clarify of course i would never try that yeah i think maybe uh, we tried it once but (laughs) (laughs) felt terrible about it afterwards is that why is that why you had to switch over to doing pigeon boss have a son yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. i would assume that the in clover it's it's such a a small concentration of yeah yeah we we ate like 500 of them yeah it it interfered with the whole experience in retrospect (laughs) yeah again never learn from the animal or plant (laughs) world copy (laughs) the animals Um, So with uh, phytoestrogens or estrogens in the waterway, which is where the development of, you know, the tadpoles or larval form of amphibians is taking place, they have permeable skin. So these phytoestrogens or estrogens from birth control pills can make their way directly into the body and alter the uh, sex ratios of the population as a whole. They're way more female, way more female frogs than males in these areas where people are flushing their birth control pills. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that with phytoestrogens and with with birth control pills and other uh, runoff from your cosmetic cabins cabinets the population the genetics of the individuals that are born skews far more towards the female so it winds up being twice as many uh females as you have males as opposed to just a 50 50 sex ratio 
the other thing that this is maybe not so much, well, I guess in this situation, it might be a challenge, but one of the benefits of being in an environment, particularly in the farther north, is that you have this heat island effect. And so there's uh, cities tend to be warmer on average. And if you have a pond where there are amphibians that are breeding and laying eggs, warmer temperatures tend to masculinize or weight the sex ratios towards males. So with phytoestrogens, it's the eggs that are being laid are twice as many females as there are males. And then with warmer temperatures, it's that the eggs after they've already been laid, the warmer it is, the uh, more likely those individuals will develop sexually into males. So it balances out perfectly. Yeah, bounce uh, probably Works probably perfectly. not perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> but it's got to just wreak havoc hormonally on these <laughs> poor little. Animals. Is it tougher like, for them if they if they're born sort of laid as a female egg and then they develop into male sexually? Is that more stressful in their system because they're kind of like changing the code or not? Yeah, well, so that's that's exactly uh, sort of the the idea is that if you if you have somewhat of a plastic sex determination. If you're hatched later in the season and they lay eggs in the spring into summer, if you're hatched later, it's going to be warmer. And in most of these species, the like in wood frogs and spring peepers, the males are smaller than the females are. And it's also energetically cheaper to be a male, right? Because you're just producing sperm, you're not producing eggs, which are larger. And so if your parent lays its eggs later in the season, the temperatures are going to be warmer, but that also means that your pond is going to dry up a lot quicker. So you need to develop faster. So it would behoove you to just be a male. Be a little guy. Yeah, you can can develop a lot quicker. Uh, You don't need as many days to mature. You don't need as many nutrients to uh, mature. So it can be helpful in that way. So we could sort of file this, I guess, under a challenge and a benefit. It's complicated (laughs) if you're an amphibian living in a city. We don't see a lot of amphibians. Well, no, we do on the roads, crossing and getting run over, I guess. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely uh, one of the problems with impervious surfaces in a city is that water, when it does rain, water hits an impervious surface and flows right off into gutters and is whisked away underground in tunnels. In a natural environment, water percolates slower through the environment. There might be vernal pools. There's just there are more areas that are suitable for breeding habitat for amphibians than there are in ur- urban areas. I'm guessing but like the the, the LA River, which is a giant aqueduct, has all these areas where water's backed up, and you have amphibians that are breeding in there. So it's not that they're completely devoid of breeding habitat. It's just not nearly as abundant and they're uh, another thing here in the salt is that you know, like salt masculinizes populations of wood frogs also so if you have road salt and you have warmer temperatures you <sighs> could get just... a population that is far too heavily yeah. skewed towards males i mean in natural systems their population is already like 90 percent male 10 percent female but you could get to a tipping point higher than that where it's closer to 100 percent male are there any amphibians that colonize these sort of tunnel drainage systems in cities where there is water underground, maybe sightless amphibians? I, d- I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, there are, you know, there are populations that are not normally fossorial. Fossorial means below ground for their almost their entire life. Uh, but like rats, which are 
you know, arboreal and terrestrial just running around on the ground. There are populations that are entirely fossorial living underground in subways because there's enough water and food down there to support them. Same with pigeon populations. You know, city environments are only uh, 100, 200 years old, really, um, for well-developed cities. So there hasn't been enough time. We'll talk about this more next week when we or in our next episode when we talk about adaptations and acclimations that animals have to urban uh, environments. But there isn't that much research on time, right? Yeah. All right. So yeah, what are some of the other the other challenges here? We've got. I guess we just mentioned uh, salt and yeah, yeah. Goodbye, fairy shrimp. (laughs) <laughs> there are a bunch of <laughs> organisms that live in like vernal pools or uh, water that uh, like with rainbow trout, salt decreases their hatching size like by a third. Uh, and so it just makes them smaller, less able to avoid prey uh, all along the uh, the roads, like the interstate here in Vermont, the lower branches that face the interstate all on white pines in particular, because they still have their leaves during the winter, the needles all start to brown on the like, lower branches facing the road because they're getting hit with salt spray Mm. also i couldn't find any research on it but uh, just anecdotally i I have heard of uh, you know my uh friend who's an environmental consultant he was telling me he had a geoprism do you know what those are a geoprism yeah that's a prison right it's a prison where you keep rocks (laughs) geoprism Prism. Yeah. Oh, prism. That's different. <laughs> That's, that makes rainbows, right? Out of rocks. For all those unruly rocks. No, it's a it's a car. It's like a... Cuts down a rock It's bike. the tiniest little most ridiculous car. It's like a clown car that's undersized. Oh, right. It's a car. Uh, so this guy, Jeff, had one of those, and he was driving, and he came around this corner, and there was a moose standing in the middle of the road, and it was Yikes. licking salt. And this was in the winter and he slammed on his brakes and his car like slid sideways. And he said he just like slowly came to a stop and then the side of his car bumped into the side of the, <laughs> the moose. The moose. just the legs because they're so yeah, tall. Like and then it just kind of bent its head down and looked at him and then kept licking the road. <laughs> kind of shook its head. Yeah. You should get a bigger car and then lick. Yeah. So there was a non-fatal collision, but collisions with cars are, you know, uh, devastating for uh, mammals, but for deer and moose that are spending more time alongside roads in the winter, both both because they're easier to travel along because there's not as much snow, but also because there's salt in the road. Yeah, it can be wow, deadly. A deadly lure for them. Um, did you know that uh, salt, which is salt and like calcium, uh, is hard? They're hard to come by in just in in environments in particular, or. Uh, any environment in in general, but in urban areas, uh, salt can actually, you know, be a limiting resource that is in higher concentration, uh, and it's essential for development. So with butterflies that have access to road salt, their eyes, for females in particular, get bigger, and their brains get a little bit stronger, and then for males, their wings get larger. They get wow. stronger. Wow, it's making them smarter and stronger. Yeah. Our city salt... Yeah, this yeah, could lead those. to a race of super butterflies in a few generations. They'll be yeah. carrying our children away, <laughs> in a beautiful way, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> that might be nice. We could ride by butterfly, That'd ride on their backs. I'm for that. A boy can dream. I say more salt. Salt it up. Is there a way that we can have salt? I mean, do they consider that certain salts are better for wildlife than other salts when they salt roads now? Well, uh, you can get uh, you can get paw friendly salts 
for your sodium chloride is the the one that was the most friendly. commonly used but you can get like pet friendly salts i'm not sure exactly what they're made out of but uh, you know a lot of towns the, the alternative to it is to use sand mm. yeah so what else what else do we have for challenges of living in a city well you'd have to find a place to live you know den and maybe a place to raise your young safely i would say Food, clothing, and shelter, and then of course finding the right clothes. Although there's lots of thrift shops, so <laughs> yeah, I imagine that's not a problem. Again, the city dump. Yeah. Um, yeah. So adapting to needs for shelter or hiding. Yeah. I, so hiders. that's sort of the interesting thing is like, do you adapt to do those things, or do you have pre-adaptations that make you more predisposed to thriving in urban environments? Right. So like an oven bird, you know, oven birds, right? I do. I love them. Yeah. I have some in my oven right now. Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving. No, yes, they make the they, traditional <laughs> That's what we're talking about, right? Birds you cook. Yeah, no, the oven birds, the warblers. They make their nests on the ground. They resemble the small ovens. Yeah. I don't believe they cook in them. No, they don't. They don't. That would be adorable, though, if you just stumbled upon a little oven bird yeah, baking a little loaf oven. of bread. Actually, they probably cook <laughs> up, you know, love and care for their offspring in there. Yeah, that's exactly. That's all they make. It's all they know how. <laughs> really so yeah if they're nesting on the ground they're doing a couple of things one is they're using leaves to construct their nests and a lot of urban birds will just use you know urban detritus for making their nests but they're not going to have access to as many leaves or as many sticks because those will get cleaned up and they also you know if you have a barren open uh even if it's a a park that has trees in it you don't have nesting site yeah it's way more conspicuous so ground nesting birds are out. But birds that nest up in the trees, presumably there's enough trees for them to do their thing. Yeah. Where do pig- pigeons nest in? I, I picture them being in, le- <laughs> okay, I should know this maybe, but having little nests on ledges or something. I don't know where pigeons nest. Yeah, I mean, in their native habitat, pigeons are cliff dwellers. And so uh, city is basically, like you know, cliffs. like a canyon that has really steep walls and you have a dangerous river below which is the road and then you have all these uh, cliffs which <laughs> have all these little ledges right. for roosting on um but yeah they they that's why like uh, little pigeon guards are these little spiky things on any uh horizontal surface on a building that they'll put on a, to prevent pigeons from roosting on them yeah, but they'll they'll less nest on ledges, and they'll also nest inside of buildings, but on just like a little ledge. What, uh, well, what other what are what are the other main challenges that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just nest. mentioned cars. You know, when you read statistics about the impact that humans have on animals, it's Im- it's almost impossible to imagine that there's still animals. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, with it's like three hundred and fifty million uh vertebrates a year die in just the u.s from collisions with cars uh even the cat statistics with bird is kind of extreme isn't it it's in the millions that are killed or yeah and then with windows which are another really big hazard windows in in the u.s it's at least a billion birds die a year from flying into windows i used to uh work in chicago and i was working for the chicago park district and i met this guy who worked at this hotel downtown and in the migration season in the spring and the fall he his job was to get to like right in the early morning before people started to uh, get up and leave the hotel he had to do a circle and scoop up all the dead birds and throw them out because 
there are a couple of different problems. One is a lot of the buildings have lights on top. So lights are another big problem. And so that can throw off birds that are navigating by stars. And so if they come to a city, they are all these bright birds or bright lights. It throws off their, uh, their visual cues for migration. And they'll wind up just doing laps around buildings. And then some of them will collapse from exhaustion, not being able to find like a place to land. And then some of them will like fly into a window and birds are really, really bad at being able to uh, generalize. So if they fly into one window and it's not fatal, they don't learn what a window is. Uh, whereas, <laughs> you know, if you walk into a sliding door, <laughs> you're going to presumably yeah. At learn. Least after three or four times, I stop. Yeah. Uh, but with birds, I mean, yeah, glass can be even the smarter birds, the parrots, the ravens. They might, they might know a little. It's possible. Um, but yeah, mo- it's mostly for migratory birds. But I, I, yeah, there's lights out. Chicago is a project where, and they're still working. But they're uh, this nonprofit trying to get building managers to turn off lights on buildings at night particularly during the migration to allow birds to move unscathed through these urban landscapes so that they don't get caught in them and fly into windows there are also other there's collide escape is a a company that they make decals and stickers for windows that you can put up so that it's not a transparent surface it's something like even six inches away if a bird flies from six inches away and hits a window it can be uh, traumatic enough that it can kill the bird we had um decals on uh windows one place i live but they were in the shape of birds which turns out to be a mistake because then a cooper's hawk a bird hunting hawk <laughs> hunted one and broke his neck uh, the curse of help. meaning well <laughs> well meaning <laughs> but killed it so I, yeah. I was doing a little research as you were talking as well so apparently yeah estimates range as high as a billion bird deaths due to collision with windows in the u.s but um i think it's from like one to three billion birds killed by cats in the u.s these are both in the u.s cats beat windows so far i was thinking that yeah cats are the number one most destructive three billion that's a lot of that's just a lot of birds i was thinking after after we do cities we could do domestic animals like feral animals and and talk about it but yeah that's a pretty hot button issue is cats is it more feral cats that kill birds than it's more feral cats it is Yeah, it's more feral cats, but domestic cats are also, I don't remember the exact statistics, but uh, domestic cats are are significant contributors to killing birds in urban and suburban environments for sure. Um, Bells don't work because cats learn how to hunt using them. But if you really want to protect birds and you also want to be stubborn and let your cat go out, they have they make these things called bird bibs, which is like this sort of harder plastic bib that the cat wears. And it sort of is pointed back at the cat's feet. So (laughs) the cat, as it's walking, is constantly hitting this object in front of it and it disrupts their ability to move fluidly through. Yeah, Yeah. So they they're. And it, they can still pounce and move freely in the environment, but it makes them just slightly awkward. That gives birds, birds that extra chance. edge, like that split second to get free. Yeah. I was thinking other things might work. Lead apron. Maybe the big cone they get for just use the cone <laughs> they have from the vet and a lead apron. Yeah. And maybe the bird belt and some bells. Just do it all. Yeah. Grind down their teeth, declom. <laughs> <laughs> and then let them go. Yeah. 
go at it. That's the kindest thing you could do. Um, I, so, well, we started talking about, yeah, fatalities by talking about cars. And with car collisions, uh, I give the statistic of, you know, quarter billion or a third of a billion vertebrates in the U.S. And uh, I was looking and God at... God knows how many invertebrates, right? Because I don't know about you, but my car window... A car window or when uh, when you have like a wet, rainy night and you have all the earthworms that's so. that come out and the roads are are just they just stink they're so gross yeah that's no way to go yeah we also get there are these like little orange Aryan slugs that come out to breed i think it's like sometime in the late summer and the bike path is always just littered with these disgusting sluggy sticky uh Slime, spots all over yeah it's pretty gross slugs. Huh. with uh with car collisions i was looking up research on what it looks like in other countries and what there's not really solid evidence but there is some evidence that suggests that uh during daylight savings time deer collisions with cars go way up but there in australia with koalas there's some really solid evidence using roadkill i actually started last year collecting data on roadkill that i'm I'm pretty excited to get through a full year (laughs) Uh, i think i've got like 160 here in uh, Vermont or um... data points here in Vermont from running and from driving of yeah car collisions one of the weird things is last week i had four owls barred owls and three of them were all within this quarter mile stretch along the interstate but anyways in australia Are you jogging were... on the interstate just curious I... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah part of your data collection method that's so, right yeah, i guess it yeah. helps you run faster but science at all costs watch out for the salt don't yeah. stop to lick salt <laughs> it'll be the death of me take the lesson from the moose so they have pretty pretty good F data in um this is in Brisbane or Brisbane 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 and of uh koala car collisions cars always win <laughs> koalas always <laughs> fare unless it's a poorly. geoprism that's yeah. 50/50 and and with them uh so this isn't ex- something that's exclusive to urban environments but anywhere where you have you know roads and uh with koalas it doesn't they're small enough that a collision at almost any speed is going to be fatal and in you know with deer if, or with that moose that you know my friend ran into with this tiny little car at small or slow speeds the moose can often be you know fine yeah but with koalas they're almost always fatal but anyway so the research was looking at when are car collisions most frequent and it's not that surprising that you know at the beginning and the end of the workday when most people are driving that is when the most collisions happen uh but it yeah it's right around dusk where the uh the highest frequency of collisions occur and they don't have daylight savings, but there's like some discussion about whether or not they should implement daylight savings so that uh, they can avoid peak traffic times during uh, when the koalas are most active. And that's sort of that's like a- in the fall when you have daylight savings time, you have the highest frequency of deer car collisions as deer don't acclimate all of a sudden to people shifting their driving patterns by an hour and it gets darker earlier. So more people are driving at night while the deer are starting to move sounds like a good excuse to get out of work early for our listeners out there that <laughs> yeah well it's scientifically still sunny, yeah. proven it's the most dangerous the witching hours the death hour for yeah. deer and koalas so it's our duty to get out of it earlier there are also a whole bunch of 
uh, negative health impacts of switching your clocks twice a year that have been really well documented. Like uh, uh, heart attack rates go way up. And yeah, uh, yeah, there not a lot of things that I can agree with Marco Rubio on, but he was in <laughs> favor of getting rid of daylight savings. So you know, to truly study this scientifically, I feel like there should be a more extreme case the other way where we switch some country or maybe a state where they switch their clock every week for, for a year. <laughs> Just yeah. have to jump around and see what happens. I mean, maybe people yeah. get used to it. But you have some good, solid data. I volunteer in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, no daylight savings time. No more daylight savings time. Oh, uh, there's just a, a couple more to point out, but uh, color in an urban environment is really different than color in a natural environment. And so predator avoidance is something that's, you know, important if you're potential prey. And if you live in a forested environment and then all of a sudden you're put into an urban environment, you might not match up with the color scheme that's in your new environment. So your camouflages. And, yeah, and so uh, there's sort of two different things that that happen. One is that birds in particular that have either darker black plumage or that have grayer plumages tend to do better you know, so that would be like a grackle, red-winged blackbird for the males or crow. They tend to do better in urban environments. Morning doves also for the gray birds. And then within those species, there's a tendency towards grayer and more uh, like black and white coloration patterns, which is kind of interesting. So some of the variation towards like greens and browns is selected it against. out too much, huh? Yeah. And then uh, with gray squirrels, you see this where the highest concentrations of melanistic or black squirrels are found in urban environments. And you have populations of melanistic squirrels, these black pigmented squirrels that can not just survive, but they can they have higher reproductive success rates than the normal pigmentation pattern because, for gray squirrels. Like all the paved surfaces tend to be black or just the shadows of the city, the uh, shadows. dark recesses. Paved surfaces, sidewalks are gray. Oh, and city goers wear black a lot, you know, especially That's in the true. theater districts. Yes, so you can yes the whole gothic vibe. Uh, <laughs> and then the, goth, the yeah. goth sectors, they do particularly well. Yeah. And then gray, I guess, the sort of aging population. Yeah. Like, hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's pretty, well, I mean, it's pretty interesting, right? Um, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've listed a, a bunch of the hazards in sort of the abiotic world and then... I guess we mentioned with cats, but there are also hazards associated not with the constructed environment in itself of impervious surfaces or increased temperatures or salt or whatever, but there's also the biological stuff that exists there. So with like domestic animals, we talked about cats. Yeah, which is, you know, I think the statistic you gave was for birds, right? Well, like yes. one to three billion. Something and like for that. mammals, the the number is like, it's like five to 20 billion mammals. <laughs> Which is, yeah, heartbreaking. I'm guessing it's mostly mice and rats, not deer that they're killing or yeah, moose. Yeah, mice, rats, shrews, chipmunks, bats often. It's not just the ones that people are grossed out by. But just having, you know, an animal, if you walk through a park and you walk by a squirrel, an animal doesn't know, that squirrel doesn't know you, right? It it assumes that you're a predator, a, a predator. And so there's just a hazard of being in a place where there are all these Stressful, potential, right? potential potential predators everywhere 
Yeah. So there's something called startle distance. When I, I went to college in Chicago, and this is where I got really obsessed with squirrels, and I started Y'all's FC, which was Ye Old Lovable Little Scamps Feeding Club. <laughs> How many members did you have in Y'all's FC? Uh, it was pretty much me and just, you know, one or two other people I would show up randomly. <laughs> but it was great. So probably we still went... going now. It's probably big now. Oh, that'd be awesome. Got to start somewhere, yeah. We would get bread from the dining hall and then bring it out to the quads and feed squirrels. And it was really easy to befriend the squirrels there. But so this idea of startle distance, like initially when you try to befriend a squirrel, you walk into its territory and it will scatter. It runs away from you. And then it'll let out like if it's really alarmed, it'll go and keep making that noise and flick its tail. But then if you become this repeated disturbance, uh, eventually it becomes a dis- you know repeated pattern. It is part of the environment. Yeah. Something that you can, it, it, the animal just gets habituated to. And then if you're bringing them bread, then they get this positive association with you. Um, but anyways, that, that startle distance initially can be really problematic. If you're an animal that at the slightest provocation runs off, then you're always going to be running off and you're going to give up all that time that you could spend foraging. Uh, and so having a low startle distance makes you yeah, more adapted for being near humans or dogs on leash. Yeah, might also make you more susceptible to getting eaten by squirrels or by cats, but it's a trade-off. Did you have squirrels following you around, perching on your shoulders at some point? We could get them to come up on our laps and... Actually, one of the worst things, because we, you know, we had names for there's one that was like Captain Death and um, Squiggles. And (laughs) so we had names for all of them. And my friend Kellen came to one of our little lunchtime sessions and he was coaxing over this this squirrel. And we're all like looking at the squirrel and it was, you know, coming over towards him. And then this red tailed hawk swooped out and grabbed the squirrel. It was pretty tragic but it kind of makes you wonder if the red-tailed hawks were queuing in to when y'all's fc was having a gathering in the which quads. one did it get sprinkles or captain i don't Death, i don't captain... remember anymore this was yeah a long time ago captain bushy tail you know i that's a tragic event that happened with that poor gray squirrel but one of the benefits so we've been talking all about the challenges and some of the benefits are actually that there's there are fewer predators so there are a bunch of surveys uh that have been done of different urban environments and it might not be 100 percent true like the highest concentration of peregrine falcons is in new york city this is of anywhere in the world and so there are certain predators that have definitely have advantages in urban environments but it seems to be that maybe just slightly above average there are fewer on average there are fewer predators in urban environments so if you're a prey living in one of those areas you well, that's a bright side might yeah. have yeah you might not have as many predators and so then what becomes more important would be uh being able to deal with competition for food resources but then those competition for the food resources might not be that intense because you might have animals that can't deal with the startle distance uh, stuff or um, you have, uh, we didn't mention it, but like toxins in the environment can suppress your immune system. So with like uh, nesting tree swallows and bluebirds that live in places where they apply pesticides like apple orchards, their immune system is compromised and uh, they're a host of other smaller uh, health issues that they have. But if you live in an urban environment where there might be, or a suburban environment where people are spraying their lawns or next to an orchard or something, you might have a compromised immune system. That could keep the numbers down. 
yeah, animals that have weaker immune systems might not be able to hack it in urban environments. Sorry, just quickly, since you mentioned startle distance again, what do you, what's your startle distance, would you say, if you're walking around downtown? Like if I see a squirrel? You're talking about reverse startle distance? Or maybe just a person, you know, kind of... <laughs> How close would they have to get to startle you? I mean, if they if a person comes up within two inches of you, that's startling. Oh, definitely. Well, especially now. I think I think if someone's nose crosses my shoulder line, <laughs> then that that immediately would set me off. It's got to right. be closer than that. I don't know. If you can smell their breath, maybe that would be my startle distance. Yeah, if they're nuzzling me, somebody I don't know is nuzzling me, I get startled, and that's yeah. what I taught my son. That's don't totally let, don't let a stranger nuzzle. <laughs> I think it's reasonable. I'm going to adapt it, adapt it to the urban environment type situation. Yeah. I mean, unless they're feeding me. Unless they're feeding me. Like, habituated. You're a prime prime urban animal, Glenn. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Yeah. Yeah, so the other benefit would just be, you know, that kind of goes along with the potential lack of predators or change in, in competition is just what species can live in an urban environments is typically far fewer that can live in an adjacent natural habitat. And so there might be less interspecific competition, competition across species lines. Right. Yeah. Fewer competitors to keep track of, fewer types of competitors, we would say. Yeah. The, uh, one of the interesting things is, so you could measure this kind of in biodiversity. So if you look at the biodiversity of a city and you compare that to the biodiversity of an adjacent natural habitat, what would you think was higher? The biodiversity, well, you just said there's fewer species in the city, so I would say higher biodiversity than an adjacent natural habitat. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you have to go further away to an actual natural habitat. Yeah. So uh, I guess this is why I brought it up. So there are you different ways me, of... You didn't you, Teague? You tricked me. I did. I did. I, I, that's it. why I want to clarify. Fell for uh, it. There, there tends to be in urban environments there tends to be higher overall species diversity, so biodiversity or species richness, just the number of species. So if you take a one square mile section of a city that has, you know, kind of a mix of habitats, maybe a park or natural area plus the urban constructed environment, and you compare that to a square mile uh, in an adjacent less urban area, you would have lower species diversity in the natural area outside of the city. And the reason is there are a whole bunch of invasive non-native species that can make it in the city. And there also might, there's going to be a much lower abundance of those native species, but a lot of them will be represented in that area by at least like a small little it's seedling small or little something bit, like yeah. that. Yeah. So then the, the more important important measure, I think, of measuring biodiversity in an urban habitat is a measure of uh, evenness. And so evenness is like if you had a habitat and it had a million animals and 999,999. Did I say that right? Yeah, I said that. That was good. Okay, great. Not very good. Yeah, six nines. (laughs) If you had that many pigeons and then you had one eastern bluebird, you would have really, really low evenness. evenness. But if you had 500,000 pigeons and 500,000 bluebirds, then you'd have really, you'd have perfect evenness, evenness. right? And a split. lot of bluebirds. And you'd have a lot of bluebirds. But urban environments tend to have really low scores of evenness, right? So it's heavily uh, skewed, skewed towards, towards certain species. non-native invasive species um, and very uh, few representatives. 
yeah, yeah. versus a natural ecosystem which might have a more evenness uh, or higher score of evenness they should call it oddness i think when your evenness is really off yeah it makes it kind of hard to talk about yeah well i think that's that's probably that's a good all, introduction there's so much to have. think about and talk about there is and we're just sort of scratching the surface of yeah we've constructed our urban environment some of the challenges and some of the benefits of living in there and then we're gonna we kind of did this a little bit this time but next time what we're going to do is really populate it with animals and look at some of the common patterns that animals have uh, of adaptations and behaviors that make them really well suited for urban environments i'm looking forward to that i i, I mean i was wondering if my possum was screeching out of alarm at all the difficulties of living in the urban <laughs> environment but maybe it was screeching triumphantly at its adaptation to the environment it, maybe Perhaps next week we'll find out yeah i was thinking maybe what we could do is you know get a recording of that and then that could, <laughs> could be our laugh track <laughs> <laughs> or i could just learn to make that my own laugh and yeah when you say something funny i could just be like, <laughs> like although it, yeah that would go against the whole theme of this show, which is never try to emulate the animal world. So, yeah. <laughs> well, cool. rarely is it rarely is it correct, but on, yeah, on specific occasions, maybe it is. As in, we don't want to encourage viewers laugh. to just yeah emulate emulate the stories of animals we hear. Yeah, but that's primarily for legal reasons. <laughs> but on the hilarity scale, you know, sometimes good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there. And uh, yeah, until next time. Great, Teague. Thank you, Professor Iwigi. And mm-hmm. uh, see you and talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Now that we know what makes a city such a dangerous place for plants and animals, in our next episode, we can then look at those brave few who have made the transition from country mouse to city mouse. Until then, we'd greatly appreciate you dropping a five-star review for us. Definitely helps us get the word out on iTunes and other podcast apps. After leaving a review, head on over to crowspath.org podcast to get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask questions, suggest future topics, and even post fake ads that we'll read on the air. You'll also find archived episodes, online natural history programs, and lots of other natural history content. All right, naturalists, well, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.